Well, let's uh, turn our attention now to God's Word on this Easter Sunday and look at with me, let's look together at, let's say it that way, uh, 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Just a little insight um, into kind of the, the preacher's desk, if I may. Several weeks ago, I uh, knew that Easter was upcoming, and so we always take a little sidetrack from whatever study we're doing, which is Ephesians right now, to have a special attention to the resurrection on this Easter Sunday. And I, I find it almost paralyzing a few weeks out when I'm trying to decide what text should we turn our attention to on Easter Sunday. And then it makes me think, I kind of wish every day was Easter, which makes you remember it kind of is. Because every Sunday we're, we're honoring the resurrection of our Lord. But in particular, this text alerted my attention in some, some significant ways because of the simplicity of the gospel that it presents. This is the climax, kind of the finishing touches that Paul is putting on the book of 1 Corinthians. Let me read those first eight verses for you. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul says, Now, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. And he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. It seems that almost every person that I know who's been a Christian for very long can point to a day, a season, a time in their life that was one of skepticism or crisis. Skepticism actually about what we believed. You can find questions sneaking into your heart like, is Christianity really true? Is Jesus truly the only way? You ever had that moment where you just wonder, does God really exist? I was a brand new Christian in high school and I had a friend on my wrestling team that I was trying to talk to about the gospel. It was witnessing. I didn't even know what witnessing really was at the time, except I was telling him what had happened in my life and we were talking about it. And he says, oh, Ricky, I think... I think that's a waste of time. I don't know why you would give your life to that. And I said, well, why is that? And he says, well, it's just not true. So I said, how do you know it's not true? So this is what he said to me. A couple months ago, I was lying in my bed. It was, it was dark in my room, and some light was coming in from the hallway, and I could see the curtains over by the window. 
So I put it to this supposed God, and I said, God, if you're real, wiggle that curtain. And if you are, I'll believe in you. I watched for 15 minutes, he said, and the curtain never moved. So he said, there you go. There's proof. Wow. Absolute proof of atheism from a curtain in a darkened room. Pretty impressive, isn't it? So sad. He didn't understand what I was coming to believe during that season of my life, that it's something you believe, not something that you feel with your hands and see literally with your eyes. Doubts can no doubt attack our hearts, though. They can chase us down an endless rabbit hole with labyrinths that only lead to other mazes. I came to my own crisis in faith when I was in college. I was in an advanced philosophy course and was shocked as I was hearing these, these friends of mine. There were only six of us in this seminar talking about the uh, ontology of God, the existence of God, and the, the absolute unprovability of God. I remember, I remember going home sometimes and holding my blue leather Ryrie study Bible and just weeping and saying, Lord, I hope this is true. I think this is true. Is it true? That set me on a search of thinking and reading and talking and praying and meeting with my youth pastor, meeting with my senior pastor. And it was after a season of months that I came to a settledness about my faith. And what led me there was what had led so many other people to the same conclusion and confidence about the truthfulness of Christianity and of Jesus of Nazareth as the Savior. If Jesus was a fraud, the people around him who knew him best certainly would have known it. However, the 11 apostles all died preaching and believing him. They all witnessed and affirmed that he was alive after death. Having been publicly executed, they saw with their own eyes. But the most convincing part of my struggle in having a settledness to my faith came from a very unexpected place. It was with the help of my senior pastor that, that led me to think in this, this line, and that was to think about Mary, the mother of Jesus. No one saw more of Jesus' life than she did. Oh, she was there to hear the, the angel's announcement that she would have a child with Without ever having been with a man, she was there in his upbringing, having him lost at the temple when he was 12. All those silent years that are silent to us were not silent to Mary. She knew, she saw, she watched, she witnessed. She was there at the cross. Jesus looked to her and to his best friend on this earth, John, and said, Take care of mom. Mothers, can you imagine a more horrifying scene than to watch your son beaten and tortured and then literally nailed helplessly to a crucifix and watching him die? 
But there's another scene that involves Mary that I think is significant. And it's after he rose from the dead. In Acts chapter 1, I want to read you this account that I'm sure you're familiar with. Luke says in Acts 1.1, the first account I composed Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach. That was the gospel of Luke. Until the day when he was taken up to heaven and after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering. Hear the resurrection there? Alive after his suffering, after his death. And by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days, about six weeks, speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. I just, what a time that would have been with the, the disciples and Jesus after his resurrection for about six weeks, being in class every day with the Lord. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. After he said these things, can I just tell you this, Acts 1-9 is one of the most understated verses in the Bible. I just keep saying, there's, tell me some more. Just listen to this. After Jesus had spoke these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. I love verse 10. As they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, do you see the scene here? He floats up into the cloud. And the disciples are looking at this. And the women who are there are looking at this. As they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them, two angels. So just see the scene. They're gaping with their probably their mouths open, looking at Jesus going up into the clouds. Where did you guys come from? Two guys show up in dazzling white clothing. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? What, a, what an interesting question. Um, did you see what we saw? That's why we're looking in the sky. This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. He left, but he's coming again. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, that is, Peter and John and James, and Andrew and Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, 
Judas, the son of James, and then verse 14. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women. And Luke says, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers, which would have included his half-brother James. Mary was there at the beginning, at the end, and at the next end when he went into heaven. And yet she remained faithful and full of faith. All of this points to the undeniable reality that these people interacted with Jesus alive after he had been killed and after he had been buried Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection from the dead is familiar to everyone. It's what we think about coming up to this Easter celebration. The question really is not, do you know it, but do you believe it? Do you really believe this happened? It's not unusual for people to have a distant sort of belief about Jesus and even his resurrection, but they don't truly believe that he really died and really rose from the dead. But instead, maybe he just... I read it again this week. He recovered from his injuries in the cool of the grave. It's called the swoon theory. He just swooned on the cross. They thought he was dead. He goes into the grave. In the coolness of that grave, he's resuscitated. He comes back better than ever. What do you believe about the biblical testimony that Jesus really died and rose from the dead? Well, the book of 1 Corinthians is a response letter of Paul to questions the Corinthians had asked him before. He's talking to this little church on the isthmus between Greece and the Peloponnesus, between mainland Greece and Sparta, between the Aegean and the Ionian seas, and they come together in a little pinch of an hourglass, and that's where Corinth sat. This church had problems. They were contaminated and confused. They were contaminated because they were living like the world. They were confused because they, they misunderstood many theological concepts, which is what Paul writes about in the book of 1 Corinthians. The climax of that letter, though, is Paul's explanation of Jesus' resurrection and his promise of resurrection for those who believe the gospel. This had come into doubt. I told you, I've had a, a season, I remember in college, a crisis of doubt that the Lord brought me through. You may have had that crisis. You may be in a crisis of doubt. The Corinthians were as well. Look down at verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12, that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? And he goes on to say, neither Christ nor us. Well, they, they had a crisis of faith in believing that there was life after death. This was very much like the Sadducees. When you're dead, you're gone. So at the heart of Paul's climax in this letter is his desire to compel and convince the Corinthians that they were in, there was indeed life after death. And that's proven by the fact that Jesus rose from the dead and offers that resurrection to anyone who believes in him. I'm going to give you four simple points of the gospel in this text. And I'm not going to give you an outline that you're going to read. It's pretty simple to memorize. 
Number one, Christ died. Christ died. Now I make known to you, brethren, verse 1, the gospel, the good news. This is good news in light of bad news. The bad news is you're going to die. The current death rate has remained 100%. Everyone will face that. It's like that mortician who signs all of his letters, eventually yours. The good news is that death doesn't have to be it. Death doesn't have to be the end. This is an important place the Bible starts telling us about salvation by calling it good news. He says, I preached that to you before, you've heard it, then you received it in which you stand, by which you are also saved. Now, it sounds like these are all a bunch of believers. And then he adds the conditional word, if, if you were saved, if. You hold fast the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Then he explains to us in that simple little sentence that there are those who can come to a knowledge of salvation, a belief in the truth of the gospel, and it be a belief that's in vain because they never committed their life to it or they bailed out on believing and staying with their belief. For I delivered to you, verse 3, as of first importance, that which I also received. Then he goes into... Real staccato, four simple points of the gospel. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised the third day. And that was witnessed. Paul doesn't tell us which scriptures he's alluding to when he says according to the scriptures, but it's very likely uh, Isaiah 53, which says that the Christ, the suffering servant, would die for the sins, the transgressions of the many. What's critical, though, is that little phrase, for our sins. Christ died for our sins. Sins. We've studied this before, but the word for has two dimensions. For can mean to do something as a benefit for someone. For can mean to do something in substitution of someone. This is both. He died for our sins as a benefit for our being sinners, a solution and a remedy for our sins. But he also died for us, meaning instead of us. He died in the place of us. As we studied Friday night, Every man, every woman is born under the rightful, furious wrath of God. We deserve death and condemnation. And the wrath of God poured out on us in hell, and he received that full and furious wrath of God on the cross instead of those who would receive it for their own sins if they believe the gospel. That's good news for sinners. I delivered to you the good news. Christ died for sins. Christ died. Number two, he was buried. He died, he was buried. Why is this in the text? It's really interesting that Christ died and he was buried. Why wouldn't he just say, well, Christ died and he rose again? Why does he add he was buried? Isn't that kind of obvious? However, it's important for him to show that he was buried to verify that he really died, which takes apart the arguments that some people have, this swoon theory and this resuscitation theory. No, he was really dead. The Romans knew he was dead. They verified his death. They actually buried him 
and stood guard after he was dead over the tomb. Joseph of Arimathea took the body under the watchful eyes of these Roman guards and they put him somewhere because they were suspicious that the, the apostles, the disciples, were going to do something sneaky about this body. Jesus' burial then was witnessed by several men and women, by the Roman guards themselves, whose lives were on the line should something happen to this executed criminal's body in their mind. If Jesus was dead, they needed to produce a body to prove it. And there was a body after the crucifixion. Joseph of Arimathea takes it, buries it in his own purchased tomb. He was buried. How dead was he? He was buried dead. That's how dead. But they should have, they should have seen it coming. In fact, Luke 24 tells us they remembered this. Remembered what? Mark 8.31, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of God must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. At a different occasion, Luke 9. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and be killed and be raised up on the third day. He keeps telling them this is going to happen, this is going to happen, and their only question back is, where do we get to sit in the kingdom? Can I be on the right or the left? Completely went over their head. The tomb had been guarded by the Roman soldiers. And after the resurrection, by the way, Matthew tells us there was a lie concocted by the Jewish authorities that the, the, the followers of Jesus had come in the night, stolen the body in Matthew 28. They had to have a... a, 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 a plausible explanation for the fact that they could not produce a body. You ever thought about this? If these people wanted to, these early antagonists against Jesus, if they really wanted to disprove the resurrection, there was an easy way to do that, wasn't there? Roll the stone away and show the body. It wasn't there. He died, Christ died, he was buried. Third, he was raised. Interestingly, we know of three men who were not convinced of Jesus' resurrection until they meet the risen Lord. He was raised. Three men initially said, I don't know about that. Who was the first? Doubting Thomas. Now, before you're too hard on old Thomas, you would have probably doubted too. In fact, it says, in Luke 24, that when the women came back and said, the body's not there, he's risen from the dead, they didn't believe them either. So we, we kind of isolate Thomas, but none of them were, were very fast to believe, except Peter who ran to the grave. Poor Thomas. He sees Jesus. And what's interesting is Thomas says, I won't believe until I put my hands in the wounds. Jesus wasn't there officially, uh, to hear that, and yet as soon as he sees Thomas, what does he say? Touch my wounds. It's proof. And he falls on his face and says, my Lord and my God. There's also James, the half-brother of Jesus. James was there apparently in the upper room praying after the ascension. He comes to faith in his brother afterwards, and I think it's very 
endearing. It's very fascinating that 1 Corinthians, Paul says, verse 7, then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. Why James? Why does he pull that out? Well, James would be the one, I believe, who would write the, the book of James. By this time, he had already written the book of James. But it's just so precious that one of his brothers comes to believe, half-brothers, comes to believe in him after the resurrection. And we know of Saul, who doubted it. He doubted it so much he was chasing Christians all the way to Damascus to extradite them and to bring them back for either prison or execution. And then he sees, strangely enough, oddly enough, to his surprise, the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus. By the way, the tomb of Jesus was never memorialized as the burial place of Jesus, ever. Almost every famous person has a grave where people can go visit their grave. There's never a grave marked for Jesus. Why? There's no grave that held him. You remember the, the bone box, it's called an ossuary, where they would, um, after the body had decayed, they would bring the bones together. The, the longest bone in the body is the femur, the, so they would, wouldn't be more than a, a three-foot box. They would put all the bones in. Joseph's bones were brought back from Egypt to the promised land to be buried. A few years ago, there was a box found that said, Jesus, Jesus son of Joseph and Mary. And so everybody said, oh, there's the bones of Jesus. It proves the resurrection isn't true. Only problem was that is there were very few first names during uh, the first century. I mean, you have, in the, in, even the disciples alone, you have a couple of names that are repeated. They have to keep saying, you know, Judas, the son of, not Iscariot, and James, the son of. They have to distinguish it. So that's not proof of anything. Here's the, maybe the most important question that can be asked is, where are the bones of Jesus? I know. I know where the bones of Jesus are. They're in his resurrected body at the right hand of the Father. There is no great grave where people go in pilgrimages to see the grave of Jesus because he rose from the grave. Christ died, he was buried, he was raised, and then forth he appeared. He was witnessed, he appeared. Paul reported alongside the four gospels that Jesus appeared alive after his death on numerous occasions to numerous people in numerous places within a hundred mile uh, uh, radius from Jerusalem to Galilee. He was seen, he was touched, he was heard. I love John 1.1, what was from the beginning, 1 John 1.1, what was from the beginning, what we heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, he saw and touched the resurrected Lord Jesus. Saul's conversion to Christianity to Paul in Acts 9, he saw the Lord Jesus. I just want us to pause for a second because we... We think about and talk about this so often that we forget the absurdity of it, the shock of it. Imagine for a moment that you went to a funeral last week of a, of a beloved friend. 
Then you went to the graveside and you saw them lower the casket into the earth. A week or so later, you're having dinner, there's a knock on the door, and he shows up at the door. Would that be a little odd? That's what happened here. But it was more than that. He appeared alive after crucifixion and burial, verse 5, to Peter, to Cephas, and to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, some of whom are alive and some have fallen asleep, some have died. I don't know which occasion that was, but at one point, 500 people saw and heard Jesus alive after a multitude saw him executed and buried. If anyone knew that this was a farce, it was the men who wrote these early accounts. And they all died believing it. If any woman ever knew the true identity of Jesus, it was his mother. And she was there at every stage of his life and died believing it. Paul anchors the legitimacy of the Christian faith to the resurrection. In fact, he says, if Christ did not rise from the dead, your faith is worthless. Look down at verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is vanity. It's in vain. It's worthless. Look at verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. You know what that tells us? That the cross needed the resurrection to be the complete gospel message for salvation. A message of Christ's cross without Christ's resurrection is an incomplete message. Jesus is alive still. You heard Adam read it earlier, Revelation 1.17. I love how, how Jesus says this. I am the living one. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forever. Well, we've talked about many times that that word behold can be translated kind of somewhat um, uh, colloquially. Guess what? I am the living one. I was dead. And guess what? I'm alive forevermore. When Paul was on trial for his very life before the Jewish leaders, he synthesized the charges against him as he hoped in the resurrection of Jesus. When he preached on Mars Hill, he focused on Jesus as the resurrection, Acts 17, 18. Listen, I would beg you, don't fall into the skepticism or the skeptic's trap who proposed theories like the swoon theory that the coolness of the grave awakened a, a Jesus who was not really dead or the stolen body uh, theory that, that someone stole it and the disciples then had what they call mass hallucination where so many people saw him because they wanted to see him. Our eternal destiny depends on what we believe about Jesus' bodily resurrection. And if we truly believe this and preach this, we're going to be looked at like someone who believes in aliens and Bigfoot. They'll say, oh, some people believe that, and maybe you're one of those some people, but not really. 
You'll be like someone who thinks the moon landings were faked. Be prepared to be looked at a little odd if you believe that God raised a man from the dead. April 5th, A.D. 33 is our best guess of the time that Jesus came back from the dead. It's April 9, 2023, and he's still alive. And I want to encourage you, because you believe that, that changes everything. That gives us hope in everything and because of everything. There is no trouble or trial in life that can take away our hope that extends beyond this life into eternity because of Jesus' resurrection. So let me ask you again, do you believe it? Do you believe it? Is that your hope? What a joy to know that. What a joy to find that. And if you have, if you have doubts, if you have skepticism, just join the rest of us. Talk to somebody. We can work through those doubts. You're not the first one to ever doubt, and you won't be the last. But I can promise you that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the precious truth of God's word. And you can be secured and settled by believing what God said and taking him at his word. If you have questions about that, our prayer room is going to be open in just a minute to my right. And uh, the goods, Dan, Daniel and Miriam will be over there. They'd love to talk to you and just have some discussions today. As you kind of shake your head and go, he's alive because he is risen. He is risen indeed. Father, thank you for the grace of this day and the truth of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's alive and we believe it. Our hope is in him, the one who was dead but is now alive forevermore. Meet us in our greatest needs Solve our troubles and our doubts with the truth from your word, your holy Bible. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a happy resurrection day.